When was the last time you fasted? Did somebody ask you that this week? When was the last time that you fasted? Some of you thinking, well, John, we just took communion, right? So how can you ask that question? Some of you say, well, actually, I fasted last night for four to eight hours. I, I, I fasted. I broke the fast this morning. I had breakfast, right? So I fast every day. When was the last time you fasted? You might question whether you're called to fast. Well, did you know that Jesus expects you to fast? Grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. We're going to be uh, studying the, the Beatitudes later on in the summer. I'm real excited about it. But notice here that in verse in chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 2, it says, when you give. And then verse 5, it says, when you pray. And then look at verse 16. It says, when you fast. Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He's saying, when you fast. In other words, fasting is not optional. It's something that Jesus expects. Now, I'll just say right there, if you cannot fast, maybe you're hyperglycemic or diabetic or have some other physical condition that doesn't allow you to, to fast, that's okay. Maybe you'll fast from a particular food or from something else. The spiritual disciplines are never meant to harm our bodies, unlike some in the early church taught and even encouraged asceticism, which is the practice of extreme self-denial and austerity. So this is why I encourage you to talk to your your physicians first before you fast and to go slow at first and maybe just skip a meal and then work your way up to a 24-hour fast where you, you don't have that snack after supper and then you miss breakfast and miss a meal so you can devote yourself to prayer and then you can have lunch or supper again with your family. The point is that Jesus expects us to fast. Now, some of us think fasting is just for the, the super Christians, right? The, the fanatics, the ones who are really desperate. Well, today we're going to learn about fasting in the good times and the bad times. Most of us think it's just in the bad times, but it's also in the good times. In fact, in fact fasting is part of the normal Christian life. It should be a regular part of our relationship with Christ and not to get God's stuff. It's not the magic, you know, key that will unlock all sorts of treasures. We should fast for all sorts of things. In Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, we're going to learn how to fast before going on a journey. I'd encourage you just to, to turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. And have you ever thought about fasting before going on vacation? You say, well, yeah, I, I try to lose some weight so that I can gorge myself on vacation, right? 
That's not what I'm talking about. Having a diet so you can have more of a, a, wasteland, a, a waistline to expand upon. We're talking about fasting before journeying. We're also going to learn how to fast before a major assignment. Have you ever a project coming up or a ministry assignment? Have you thought about fasting? And not just so you skip meals to have more time to work on the project. You see, as I've taught you before, my friend Dr. Rich, Rich, Richard Kreider, my mentor, said, fasting is feasting on Christ. Jesus declares that he is the bread of life. He sustains us. Scott McKnight corrects our thinking when he writes in his book entitled Fasting. Fasting, along with our prayer request, is not some kind of magic bullet to ensure the answer we want. Fasting does not, doesn't reinforce the crumbling walls of our prayers like flying buttresses, nor is it a manipulative device. We fast because a condition arises that leads us to desire something deeply. We fast because our plea is so intense that in the midst of our sacred desire, eating seems sacrilegious. It's like what I've noticed, the spouse of somebody who's, who's gone on to be a Jesus, usually they don't eat much at a funeral reception. It just doesn't feel quite right. Another teacher has said, fasting helps you separate from what you want from what you need. And hungry people are desperate people. Did you catch that? Hungry people are desperate people. You're probably not desperate enough if you're turning to food for comfort or stress relief, which I got to tell you, I've done so much in my life. Probably I'm the only one here, right, that's done that. So it begs the question. Here's the big question. Are you desperate? Are you desperate? I take great encouragement that we can have it all like we do here in North America and yet still be desperate for what's really needed. The deep, close connection with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so let's read Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, to become desperate for God in every area of your life. This is a different sermon. This is a sermon, a call to desperation. I want you to learn how to be more desperate at the end of this sermon than when you came into this building. Does that sound good? Stick with me. Why don't you stand? We'll read from Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. Ezra 8, 21 through 23. You can look this up on your smartphone if you haven't found it yet. Google it. Ezra 8, verse 21. Then I, that's Ezra, proclaimed a fast there at the river Hava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king, the hand of our God is good on all who seek him, and the powers of, of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Oh, wow. I hope he'll listen to our entreaty today. Here, uh, let's look at this verse that we're trying to memorize from Ezra 8, 22b. This is our verse for June. Let's all say it together. Ezra 8, 22b. 
The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Okay, let's say it again. Ezra 8:22b. The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Okay, let's try to do it without looking. Ezra 8:22b. The hand of our God is for good for all those who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake him. And may we be considered the lot who seek the Lord. You may be seated. Work on that verse in your families and small groups. Now I need to recap what's happened so far in Ezra, because if we don't understand the background, we'll not understand the significance of what Ezra did and what we are to do also. So let me tell you a little about Ezra. Ezra was a Jew, but he wasn't born in the promised land. He was actually born in the land of Babylon, under exile. Now, Why were the Jews exiled in Babylon? Take 10 seconds and tell the person next to you why the Jews were exiled in Babylon. Take 10 seconds, just tell. If you don't know, that's fine. Why were the Jews exiled in Babylon? Okay, you got it? If you don't know, I'll tell you. It's because they cheated on God. Repeatedly, they sinned against God. The Jews were in exile because they had forsaken God. And so his wrath was upon them. It's around 450 B.C. at the time of writing in Ezra 8, and the first wave of, of exiles has already returned to Jerusalem, and they've already rebuilt a lot of the temple in Jerusalem. And now Ezra is now leading a second wave of exiles to Babylon, and not only has permission from King Artaxerxes to leave captivity and make sacrifices to God on the king's behalf. In fact, this is the second Persian king, the first being Darius, who has given the returning exiles permission to return and intercede for the king. And it gets even better. The king actually promised to provide for Ezra and his fellow Jews. And Ezra 7.20 declares, And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. This is a blank check, right? The king's saying, Go! And also take whatever you need from my treasury. Furthermore, not only did Ezra have permission and provision, he had people, which is probably the most important thing, right? Like, when we go through a building project, you need people to help out. You need, Ken Scott, you need contractors, right? You need, you need to find the right people. That's pretty important. Well, we learned last week that Ezra had a, pro a people problem. He was missing Levites. And when you miss Levites, that's pretty important, especially back in that day, because you had nobody who would help you be able to make sacrifices unto God, and therefore you could not have your sins atoned for. That's a big problem. But once again, Jehovah Jireh, God provided, and he finds Levites in the place of Casiphia, and so think about this. Ezra has the permission of the king. He has the provisions of the king. And he even has the people to go do the work. So what does he do next? 
It's time to go, right? It's time to pack up and head out. That's not what Ezra does. Ezra calls for a fast. And this is really important to understand, especially when we want to live the desperate and dependent life upon Christ. I'll put it this way. When you have everything, seek God as if you have nothing. When you have everything, see God as if you have nothing. You know, someone say, well, John, I, this, prayer is, this, this sermon is not for me because I don't have everything. I'm really struggling. Well, then just stick for the last part of this, okay? Seek God as if you have nothing because you, can't, you don't have nothing. If you really think about it, you have more. Ecclesiastes 1, written by King Solomon, who had all the money and power and pleasure, knowledge one could ever hope to have, said everything under the sun is meaningless. This means that we must find our meaning above the sun in the Lord God. All that we and this world strives to own will not last. We must start to see that our everything is this, simply Christ alone. Is Christ your everything? I'll put it this way. If we were in a, on a race, isn't there a, isn't there a big Formula One race this, this weekend in Montreal or coming up? If we were in a race, God's superhighway of blessing and life does not have signs that say, ready, set, go. That's not the kingdom way. No, God calls, especially when we have everything, to obey this sign, ready, set, kneel. Ready, set, kneel. We're called to pray. We're called to fast. Even when everything seems to line up and we think we have everything that we need. When you have everything, seek God as if you have nothing. Seek God, fast and pray in the bad times and in the good times. Isn't this what we see in Ezra 8.21? Look what, look what Ezra does. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God and to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. The Jews humbled themselves first and then they fasted and prayed about going. They fasted and prayed before they journeyed. For all of us who believe in, have you ever done this? You're like, I just need a few, Lord, just show me. I just need some signs for God to show me the right way to go. And all of a sudden, those, those signs start to line up. And then we think, well, it must be God's will. Be very cautious about that. Instead, we need to seek God more. Many of us think, who needs to pray when you have everything? But this is not what Ezra felt, nor did he presume upon God. When you have everything, you seek God as if you have nothing. And he, he prayed. What did he pray for? He prayed for traveling mercies. Now, I don't know about you, but this is how I grew up in our house. Every time we went on some type of vacation or went away, before we, we left the driveway, my parents would stop and we would pray. And we'd pray for safety and we'd pray for protection over the house. Anybody else that's been kind of your tradition? Okay. I always wondered, 
Do I have Bible for that? Like, it's good to pray, right? Pray without ceasing. But here's an example of Ezra actually doing this. So, Dad, this is maybe where you got it from. I don't know. But we have Bible for this. And this is a practice that Lori and I have continued to, to pray for. And you may say, well, why, why pray for safe traveling mercies? Well, think about it. There are drunk drivers. There are drivers out there texting. There's dr drivers uh, smoking weed. Um, there's all sorts of distractions. You're, it's been a mini miracle you made it to church today. Do you realize that? Like, I pray you here every Sunday. And we need to do this every time we turn on the ignition. We pray. That should be your new thing. We turn on the ignition. I'm praying first. Before you start that commute, no matter how early, even if you're trying to beat the Toronto traffic, pray. The roads are scary places. I'm not trying to cause more stress in your life. I'm just telling you reality. And some of you know that. But it wasn't just for safety that Ezra was praying. Ezra prayed for the faith of the next generation. Look at verse 21 again. Ezra and his fellow Jews sought the Lord for our children. Literally the weak. I mean... Listen, we need to love children, even if they're distracting, even if they're having a difficult time. And like, it was, I don't remember you praying this, Dad, but you probably should have. Lord, please help Jonathan and Stephanie not to fight, right? Like, that's a good prayer to pray when you're traveling. And it's, it's important to pray, Lord, help us to learn all the lessons you want us to learn on this journey, that you bring peace to your family, I think Ezra prayed for children because he didn't want to miss the opportunity to teach the next generation to worship and praise God and to trust him. See, Ezra, and Ezra knew this in practices. Ezra 7.10 says he studied and then he obeyed and then he taught the book of the law. That was one of our memory verses. And so he would have wanted to do this with his own family. And, and, and here's where he gets this from. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, verse 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you Rise. Fasting and praying in the good times is a way to disciple your family. Remember this truth this summer. Faith in God and his power over the Jews' enemies clearly radiates from these verses. Here's it is. Faith in God is an adventure. I have... I, the, the life that I have lived because I followed Jesus has been beyond imagination. Marrying a girl from Kansas, going all over the world teaching his gospel, getting into conversations with people, crazy stories about what God has done. It's awesome to follow God. It's an adventure. It's not easy. It's hard. There's much suffering. That's why we pray, even when we know it's going to be hard, as we talked about earlier. But it's an adventure. Teach your kids that faith in God is the best adventure they could ever have. And when you have everything, seek God as if you have nothing. Not only will you trust God for safety and for discipleship, but also for protection. 
Remember, Ezra already had the permission and provision and the people. Yes, King Artaxerxes had promised protection. Look what it says in, in Ezra 7.26. This is the king. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. The king has given Ezra, like, if anybody gets in your way, I got your back. They're messing with me. And so you would have thought, well, Ezra's like, hey, we got, the king's got us. We're okay. No problem. He doesn't presume. Instead, he knew the hearts of human beings. See, people disobey kings and rulers all the time because if they disobeyed the ultimate ruler, the Lord God, human despots can easily be disobeyed. And this is why Ezra says in Ezra 8.22, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a bond of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy of our, on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is good for on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Ezra had put God's name on the line with the king. And so, thems are fighting words, for fighting words, right? We often forget the spiritual battle we're in. And that according to Ephesians 6:12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Jensen Franklin, in describing Jesus' 40-day fast and fight with the devil in the wilderness, says this, Anytime you fast, it is a, stronger, a hunger strike against hell. And listen to Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, the largest mission organization in the world, says this, I believe the power of fasting as it relates to power is the spiritual atomic bomb that our Lord gives to destroy the stronghold of evil and usher in a great revival and spiritual harvest around the world. No wonder our first step should be to fast and pray. We fight not with weapons of the world that the world uses, such as our fists and words and guns, but with our knees in prayer and with the word of God and with his gospel. So far, I've talked a lot about fasting and not much about prayer. But check out Ezra 8.23, how prayer accompanies fasting. Look what it says. So we fasted and implored, I mean begged our God for this, prayed for this, and he listened to our entreaty. You see, as Dan Sutherland reminds us, when you fast, you give up something in order to do something, more of something else. Fasting is adding more time and energy so you can devote to prayer. In fact, fasting is a serious form of prayer. I believe this is best demonstrated by Jesus when he fasted. He not only fasted 40 days in the wilderness, but he fasted on the cross. Remember when he refused drink? When he was offered? He was parched. But he did so as an example for us. So what should we do before we rebuild? Fast and pray. 
This is despite all the money and plans in place. We need to seek God. And so I'm calling for a mini fast today before you head out to Swish LA. I'm asking that before you go and eat, you pray around this building. Our leadership team has done this before. We've, we've done dream days. And yet I'm not aware, at least under my tenure, that we have ever done this as a church. So before you leave today, we're going to ask you to go on a praise walk, a P-R-Y-Z-E walk, both inside and outside of the church. And we have these, these sheets, these sheets of paper. Lord, please bring glory to yourself hereby. You want to thank God for what he's done in the past and looking forward to the future. We want you to walk together as families, walk together with your small groups, walk together with your friends and your ministry partners. And if God reveals anything to you, let our elders know. Elders, just raise your hand so that they can, okay. Just talk to one of us. Talk to the build team. And when you go in the prayer rock, please respect our plan to protect, right, of our children and, and not break any of our, our policies in regards to that. But let's fast and pray. Remember, when you have everything, seek God as if you have what? Nothing. I conclude with this prayer in a paper found on the body of a, of a dead Confederate soldier during the Civil War that will give us the right perspective. This is what it said. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked God for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might endure all things. I got nothing I asked for but everything that I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed, found on the body of a dead Confederate soldier during the Civil War. Maybe you were bumping along in life and everything was going okay. Yesterday, Lori and I were coming back from kind of a uh, vacation and an and, um, anniversary getaway. We got a call from our daughter, Jessie, that my mom had fallen down the stairs. She'd fainted and fall, fallen. And it's just a reminder that we live just on the precipice of being desperate, right? My mom's tired. She's released from the hospital, the running test. Um, thank the Lord that there's nothing obvious that was very serious. But it's just a reminder that it's not just anticipating living in desperation. We are to live in a constant state of desperation because we are needy before our God. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come up and we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. Can you sing this with, with all-out authenticity and hearts full of sincerity before God that you are desperate for God, that you need him? Let's pray. God, I pray, we as a church, I think of myself as a father and as a pastor and as a husband, 
as a man, I am desperate for you. We are desperate for you, God. So Lord, we sing right now to you that we would describe this desperation in song and that you would fill all those empty places, we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.